Can you catch this? Or match this? Check this direct to your spinal axis. All right, welcome back to Catch This. This is uh, part two of a four-part series on medicine and dynamic pressure environments. You'll recall that in part one, we dealt with the atmosphere and Dalton's law. Uh, specifically focused on hypoxia and in today's episode we're going to turn to Henry's law which results in what we know clinically as decompression sickness. So Henry's law is stated as the amount of any given gas that will dissolve in a liquid at a given temperature is directly proportional to the partial pressure of that gas. Now note that we are talking about the partial pressure of that gas as opposed to total pressure, although they are related through Dalton's law. This can be remembered with the Coke bottle analogy. If you can visualize a Coke bottle, the way we make carbonated beverages is that we fill a bottle with flavoring water and various colors and whatnot and then we put a cap on it and force a gas in this case carbon dioxide into the bottle at a very high pressure that pressure is very high and it causes the the carbon dioxide to then move into solution and dissolve we then cap the the bottle in order to keep the pressure constant but then when we take the cap off of the bottle, the pressure over the gas will suddenly decrease and it allows that pressure, excuse me, allows the carbon dioxide to come out of solution in an effervescent manner. You'll recall our universal gas law discusses pressure, volume, moles, and temperature. And we talked about temperature and volume last time, but we can't uh, really move on without understanding the relationship between pressure and volume. And that's described in Boyle's law. Now, while this isn't really the focus of our episode today, we simply can't talk about decompression sickness without understanding Boyle's law. So Boyle's law states that at constant temperature, the absolute pressure and the volume of gas are inversely proportional. And you can see that in the classic experiment on this slide. But think of a balloon. As the balloon increases in the atmosphere, the total pressure around it will decrease and then allow the volume of that uh, balloon to expand up until the point it bursts, of course. But if we take that volume down in a higher pressure, i.e. underwater, then that pressure is increasing and it'll cause the volume of that pressure to decrease. In the U.S. Navy dive manual, decompression sickness is described as follows. DCS results from the formation of bubbles in the blood or body tissues and is caused by inadequate elimination of dissolved gas after a dive or other exposure to high pressure. Now there's some key ideas here that we'll come back to throughout this discussion. Please note first of all that in order to have decompression sickness you must have an exposure to high pressure. Now, that may seem intuitively obvious as you look at this slide but understand that in the emergency department it can be a little bit confusing when you're trying to determine whether that exposure was actually there or not. It's useful to look back at the history of what these namesakes provide us. We're talking about Boyle's Law and Henry's Law, but let's focus on Boyle for just a minute. So Robert Boyle, first of all, lived in a time early on when we really had very little understanding of medical knowledge. But what this man provided for us was a description of some of the physical properties that ultimately helped us to understand what decompression sickness was all about. Now what Robert Boyle did was he, with Robert Hooke, created a, the first hyperbaric chamber. He created it as very small and then he conducted a, a number of experiments and just like a, a little boy putting um, a water hose over the ant farm and watching them squirm, he started out by just putting various animals and insects and whatnot into his chamber and one day he put a snake in there and as he watched the ch the pressure change in his uh, hyperbaric chamber, he observed a bubble forming in the snake's eye. And what you see on the screen is that original classic description. So Robert Boyle described a bubble which later became 
clinically relevant in terms of the decompression sickness that we now talk about today. And this x-ray of a knee of a U2 pilot after uh, experiencing some very severe decompression sickness, we note a very similar bubble, although much bigger, and in this case uh, identified radiographically causing a severe amount of knee pain. Now this disease became known as Quezon's disease. And shortly after the American Civil War, a large project in reconstruction and engineering technology advancements had begun. And two of those projects, the Eads Bridge Project in St. Louis and the Brooklyn Bridge Project, were made possible by the development of a pressure pump that allowed underwater work to occur. So a device known as a caisson was uh, submerged underwater. And this was essentially just a, a, a large um, tank that could be then filled with pressurized air as the pump press, pressed air in there and pushed water out. And what this did was it created a dry space where the engineers could go down and work. And this uh, made these long bridge projects very possible. The normal work flow for the day would be that the workers would come out on Monday and they would go down into the caisson and do their work. And because it was very inefficient to bring them up and take them back down, they would stay there all week. And at the end of the week, they would then move out of the um, out of the caisson. Now, understanding what you know about Henry's law, if we push pressure down into this area and then we put a, a, a liquid, i.e. a human body, in that high pressure environment, a certain amount of that gas is going to then dissolve in the liquids within the body. Now, at the end of the week when they would come out, what we have effectively done is taken the, the bottle cap off of the bottle and allowed the pressure to decrease. So just like the Coke bottle, that gas, in this case, we know that it's atmospheric gas, so we're talking about primarily nitrogen, would come out of solution and cause bubbles in the tissue. Now clinically, what would happen then is the individual would bend over um, in pain, doubled over, and, he, and that posture then became known as the Grecian bend, and I'll leave it to your imagination to understand where that came from. But this later got shortened to the bends, and so you'll hear these terms, the bends, caissons disease associated with decompression sickness. Now moving forward just a little bit, um, we get a more relevant pressure chamber developed in 1878 by Paul Bear in France. Now Paul Bear did a lot of experiments, mostly on himself, in this hyperbaric chamber. And what's fascinating about this is even though he didn't understand what was going on, in 1878, in his original treatise, La Pression Barometrique, he described a lot of what we now know to be true about decompression sickness. The first hypothesis was that DCS was, in fact, due to nitrogen bubbles. And I've already insinuated that through my presentation. Um, but it was Paul Baer who actually made that proposal early on. He was also the first to suggest that that we could solve this problem by decompressing with oxygen and the first to suggest that treatment for decompression sickness would probably best be accomplished by recompression. He was also first to suggest slow decrease in pressure to avoid DCS. Now all of these things became true and relevant and as we learn operationally we uh, can solve these problems through recompression and slow adjustments in pressures. So let's begin with this first suggestion and that is that the nitrogen bubbles would be the result of decompression sickness. Now, if you think back to Henry's law, it makes sense that we might get bubbles as we change pressures. Uh, again, Henry's law states that tissues would be saturated with nitrogen under the higher pressure, but then when we would come out of that pressure, i.e. coming up from the caisson, that pressure would decrease and the tissue would then be supersaturated and 
ultimately that nitrogen would come out of solution and would form a bubble. So what's the problem with this theory? Well, the, the basic issue is that in experimentation, it just takes entirely too much pressure differential that we just don't see operationally in order to form bubbles in tissue. So it, 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 if you look at a lot of the, the literature and the science um, in, the, in the modern world, we just don't get bubbles coming strictly from Henry's law. So if bubbles don't strictly come from tissue due to pressure differentials, where do they come from? Well, the uh, current theory is primarily based on this idea of tribonucleation. So if you can um, think back to popping your knuckles, when you pop those knuckles, what's going on? Well, in your synovium, there is a large amount of pressure that's being generated between those two uh, synovial surfaces. As we move them uh, and they slide, the surface tension of the fluid there is keeping those together. But when we pop them, we're able to create a uh, pressure differential that that forms this acoustic cavitation and allows that popping sound to happen, but at the same time creates enough pressure to actually pull gas out of solution and form a bubble. Now if this is happening on a microscopic level in a number of your tissues, those small tiny bubbles then ultimately form the bubble nuclei and then allows Henry's law to come into effect where pressure um, allows gas to come out and those bubbles then get larger and larger as we go. And those then are the source of our problem in dealing with decompression sickness. So if we look at the bubbles, you know, the, the thing that makes it clinically relevant, of course, is what the bubbles do. And so the first thing is how many bubbles are there? And, and um, it should stand to natural reason that the more bubbles there are, the more physical problems you're going to have. Um, and that, that does turn out to be clinically true. Um, bubbles are readily demonstrated by Doppler on no decompression dives and in any change environment. So whether they're causing clinical symptomology or not, we know that the bubbles are forming. Where they form then presents our symptomology. And so bubbles have um, effects, and those effects can be categorized into mechanical and non-mechanical effects. And you can see those here on the on the screen. But mechanical effects would, would seem fairly obvious. If a bubble blocks an artery, then you're going to get a, a, a blockage of blood flow. And whether that happens in the spine or the or the brain or the heart, you can determine the symptoms that may come from that. But also, there are intracellular, extracellular, and uh, intravascular effects. And then there are the non-mechanical effects, which deal with protein denaturization, coagulation, complement activation, and uh, very symbolic phenomenon that happen as a result of the bubble. So all of these effects combined lead us to some fairly significant uh, clinical problems uh, that we collectively call decompression injury. Now. Let's go back to our definition, and if you recall, we, um, we said that in order to have decompression sickness, you had to have an exposure to high pressure. So we normally think of decompression sickness in the context of diving, but if we look at the aviation environment, we can also get decompression sickness, and this may not make intuitive sense at first, um, but one of the key differences is that when we go up in the atmosphere, we are exposing our aviators to a decrease in pressure, not an increase in pressure. But if you think about this pressure differential, it will help you to understand the clinical presentation of this condition. So in altitude decompression sickness, our exposure to high pressure is happening prior to the operation. While the airplane is sitting at sea level, we have a high pressure relative to to the pressure that we're experiencing while we're in flight. Now that flight happens to be long enough, uh, we can run into decompression sickness, but in this case, we would normally expect our symptomology to occur 
while we're in the air as opposed to on the surface, which you would normally experience in, in diving decompression sickness. So if we look at altitude DCS, we, of, of course, the discovery of this particular uh, variation of the condition coincided with the development of aviation in the world. Now, in the 1930s, these were the first reported cases of altitude DCS. Why? Because we began to fly higher and faster in unpressurized aircraft. In 1941, the Navy uh, used this first hyperbaric therapy for the treatment of altitude DCS. And remember, it was Paul Bear that described this back in 1878, but it wasn't until 1941 that we actually used it therapeutically. In um, the uh, 40s and 50s, there was a dramatic increase in the number of altitude DCS cases, 17,000 cases, 17 deaths. These were mostly uh, due to military operations and aviation operations and training. And you may not recognize this aircraft, but this was an important aircraft in aviation history and aviation medicine history. The uh, Comet was the first pressurized cabin. And in the 1950s, there was a big effort to increase the the range of the aircraft and to improve the uh, comfort for passengers. So uh, one of the big breakthroughs was cabin pressurization, which allowed us to fly with the cabin pressure at a lower altitude. And this was done primarily to decrease the risk of decompression and improve the comfort of the passenger. Today, most of our operational DCS cases result from loss of cabin pressure. Nearly all cases occur as a result of chamber training in the military, and um, we normally see a rate in training of about one to two cases per 1,000 exposures. So it's not so common with the pressurized cabin to see altitude DCS, but do understand that, that there are a number of operational platforms in aviation that still operate unpressurized and uh, expose the crews to altitude DCS. That gets us to the end of this episode where we finished the basic description of decompression sickness. Join us next time on Catch This when we talk about the clinical presentation and treatment of decompression sickness.